Welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck, and we'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Wadawurrung people and the Wurundjeri people, and we pay res- our respects to their elders past and present. So we're excited to have a guest with us today on Language Chats, and our guest is a Professor of Language and Literacy Education at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education and serves as immediate past president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. In 2012, he was appointed Research Director of the UNICEF Language and Peacebuilding Initiative in Malaysia, Myanmar and Thailand. Professor Joseph Lobianco, welcome to Language Chats. Oh, good evening. Nice to see you both and thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure to have you with us. Um, thank you for taking the time to to speak with us. And we're really excited to chat with you because actually you've been on our list of potential interviewees for quite some time. <laughs> um, so firstly, before we get into, I guess, the nitty gritty of some of the work that you have done and continue to do, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in language? Well, in Myrtleford in northeast Victoria, um, to an immigrant family which did speak English at home. Uh, we spoke uh, a variety of Italian and then I learned standard Italian and played with a lot of Spanish kids and I learned Spanish. So I grew up in a very multilingual environment, learned English at school. I wasn't interested in language mainly because of the what I became interested in later, that is the, the um, in, intrinsic importance and complexity of language. I was mainly interested in language because of the way in which uh, language held back opportunities for people um, who didn't know English, my parents, obviously, and myself uh, initially. So I was always aware that there were social justice questions associated with language. And so a lot of my work has focused on that. But uh, gradually, I you know, I, I studied economics at university when I left the small town and came to the big smoke and all the enormous number of experiences that that involves. Um, I did economics and political science. I worked briefly in those areas. Um, and I was working in briefly in manufacturing industry, looking at the loss of jobs, uh, migrant women uh, occupied jobs mainly in um, industrial work for, uh, workplaces in Melbourne. And it was apparent again that with the incredible restructuring that was going on in the economy, lots of people were losing their jobs and they couldn't compete for any new jobs because of language questions. And um, so that reinforced my initial ideas about language and opportunity. And so I... Um, converted away from economic focus uh, and economic focus to retrain as a linguist and an educator. I took both a linguistics degree and a, an education degree and then a master's degree and then a PhD. So I did all these things over a long period of time while working and I became very focused on issues of um, the fact that we didn't have any kind of policy guiding language questions in Australia, I became very active in a lot of social groups and um, lobby groups pressuring for this, um, including teacher groups, but well beyond them as well. 
And to cut a very long story short, eventually I was invited, partly for being such a nuisance, I go, I suppose, <laughs> by the federal government to put my money where my mouth was and to draft one for them, which I did do, um, and they adopted. And um, and then I just, um, th that received a lot of international attention and I got, got a lot of info to do work in that area. So basically it was those shifts cut very, very short or very briefly, expressed very briefly here, those shifts that basically marked out the trajectory of my career. But I did also do teaching, quite a bit of teaching. I taught um, uh, languages. I also taught a little bit of economics, but I taught languages. I, I taught literacy to adults. I did a lot of volunteer teaching and work, and I did a lot of adult English teaching to, you know, refugee people and stuff like that. So I did a lot of, all all along during my policy work and other work, I was always, always doing tutoring and teaching and curriculum writing and other writing. I came to love writing and I found out that I could write reasonably quickly and so I, I became active in that area. So uh, one thing led to another, as they say. What was what was the landscape like when you were drafting this this policy in the in the eighties? What what was it like in Australian terms of I guess English speakers learning a second language, migrant communities, you know, coming to Australia and, and confronting the fact that you know English was was surrounding them? How, how did what was the I guess the the feeling about language learning and language policy in the eighties at the time? What I think surprises it's a really good question. What surprises people who ask that question is when I say to them that in some ways things were better than they are now. Um, in many ways they were not as good, of course, because people have much more knowledge and awareness. You know, this was already a long, long time ago, but things were better. But we need maybe to go back to 68. In 1968, universities in Australia removed the requirement for a second language to enter degrees like medicine and law or at the universities that existed at the time. And languages had been cast very much as a kind of elite passageway into the top degree uh, courses at uh, top universities. So they were really not for public, for most people. It, very few students in regular schools took languages. It was really just students directed towards those particular programs. Um, so there was a lot of elitism mm. um, at the late, in, during the late 60s, and languages were not even studied to be able to speak them. They were taught really just as a form of social selection and education selection. Um, so they had these qualities about them, and it meant that very, um, you know, the best schools in terms of resources were the ones that offered these programs. There were several revolutions that happened um, in the course of this. One of them was the revolution of communication, placing priority on learning about ordinary people who speak languages and being able to speak to them. And so the shift went away from grammar and translation um, towards communicative language. This was the beginning of the communicative language revolution. So this basically was just behind us in the 80s when I was doing this work. But also in the 70s, what had happened was a really radical change in Australian life. It was when we adopted policies of 
multiculturalism, which were really very, very in the forefront of these things in the world. Really, only Canada and Australia had done things like this very much. Um, and there was a lot of optimism about these, the ability to uh, change attitudes in society. This is something that hasn't existed a lot since. Society is much more cynical now, I think. Uh, I certainly remember it as being that way. Um, so um, in the late 70s, when I'd finished my first bunch of university degrees, I mean, I'd had a very, very bad car accident. I was really injured for many, quite a few years, I was out of action. But when I, when I returned to university and finished my study and became uh, um, a working person and, a, you know, by that stage a father as well, and um, I was very interested in children and language, partly because of my own children, but more generally because of my own experiences and and working with immigrant and Aboriginal groups. And I started to see that we needed a we needed a comprehensive approach to language. It couldn't be just what we did in schools. It had to be about community efforts as well, and it should be in employment and etc. If we had a society that really respected what's involved in bilingualism, we should reward it across the board, recognize what's involved, the effort and the achievement. Um, these were all coursing through my mind and there was of course many other people involved and I was part of an activist group that was pushing the government to do a language policy and as I said before as a kind of dare they asked me to do it. So the atmosphere at the time was one of a lot of contestation because a lot of people strongly disagreed with what we were trying to do. Um, you know, I had one person very angrily scream at me and say, we will not have a second language in this country. We will not become like India. We will not, you know, all of these prejudices. Um, so people, there, there was a minority of people who feared that if we adopted a policy that said languages should be compulsory, that this was extremely unfair on English-speaking Australian kids. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of ignorance, you know, how do you persuade people? It's actually a good thing. You you know, your children's legs are not going to drop off. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to them. It'll open up worlds of opportunity and cultural richness to them. Well, in that way, we've changed enormously for the better because very few people have those extremely, uh, primitive views, um, but still, there were many things about the time that were better than now, because when the policy was adopted, there was really widespread enthusiasm for it. You know, I was just racing around every part of the country, talks at RSL clubs and, you know, schools everywhere. I must have visited almost every school in the country. Um, uh, remote Aboriginal communities, immigrant groups, teacher associations everywhere. So it was very full-on active. And then during the 90s, this is just an example of what was going on. Pe people don't know this. I've, I've got to write this part of it up. During the 1990s, when the policy was being implemented, um, I was directing an organisation called the National Languages and Literacy Institute, which very, very sadly, a later government closed down, took all our funding away. But um, uh, I was directing this and uh, I'd been to, I'd read about these um, language expos that they 
were holding in Europe. And I visited one in Paris. And these were like the publisher's displays at a conference, you know, that that kind of thing. They weren't very imaginative, but, but they were interesting. And so I thought, well, we should do something really wild like this on a big scale. So we did one in Melbourne in 1992 at the exhibition building, worked very, very hard. We got 4,000 people through in um over the course of three days, we attached seminars and cultural activity and book fairs and lots and lots and lots of activities. Then three years later, we did it again in Sydney. We worked much harder for that. We got nearly 10,000 people through over four days. It was one of the biggest language, probably the biggest single language event ever held in Australia. And then we did one in Brisbane two years after that, and that was very successful. It was about 5,000 people. Um we also did a study which was just basically this idea that I had one day that we should try and normalise the approach to multilingualism even in sport. And so the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games were happening and um, <clears throat> I commissioned a group of people to do a study of communication issues at the Games and they came up with lots of interesting findings. So we then went to the Sydney Organising Committee for the Olympic Games, the best thing that anyone's ever done, and that is really take, you know, the Olympic Games, the official languages are English and French, and then you have each individual sports associations have whatever languages are strong, so it could be Russian or, you know, Japanese or Chinese or Italian, whatever particular country is strong in that uh, particular sport. And then they have to have, for doping requirements and tests, they have to have if there's an appeal, you can appeal in whatever language you are comfortable in and speak mostly. That's kind of the rough outline of the policy. And we said to them, why don't you do a really thorough celebration of multilingualism as part of this? And they adopted it. And we had a an absolute ball with doing this thing. And it then became a model for what London and Athens did afterwards. So this was what we would, things we were doing. There was such creative work and the you know the number of publications the conferences the activities the support for teachers the um raising children bilingually like lots and lots of initiatives that were started all around the country that were um really ahead of the game uh, i'm not saying that to be boastful we had ample evidence all around the world that people were looking to us um and uh, trying to emulate what we did. And, of course, during that time, I had lots of invitations to go and work in other places. So my career shifted and um, moved towards international work, always on issues of solving language problems, in inverted commas. So I worked in Sri Lanka and Vietnam and Thailand, Malaysia, Myanmar, India, Canada, South America, North Africa, Europe, lots and lots of places, <laughs> and um, like dozens of places more than that in the Pacific. And um, it really underscored what the sense had been originally with our work, that it is a massively neglected social resource. If you think about it, our citizenship 
our life in a democratic society, our economic opportunities, all of these things are tied to language and language abilities. But people tend to have a very, what I call, reductive view of what language is. They think of it in very simplistic terms and ignore all the different ways it makes most of our human society possible. I mean, it's just not possible to even build the building without language. I mean, it's not concrete that builds it. It's the cooperation <laughs> between the people putting it together and the knowledge they've received from the people who've done it in the past. All of that's mediated by language. That's, that's fantastic. And I think what, what an interesting view into the impact that language has on society all around, especially in Australia. But I'm interested to know, so you said that, you know, it took you all around the world and that you got to look at different language-related problems. Could you um, give us some examples of what, what those kinds of issues were facing other places around the world as well? Well, yes, there were... Uh, they vary, of course, in, in different places. For example, w when I worked in both Scotland and Ireland, the projects there were about um, reviving the uh, traditional languages of those places, Scottish Gaelic in Scotland, and I also worked in Wales, um, Welsh in Wales, and but mostly in, in Ireland with Irish. And... Um, it's very interesting because when they started the work on promoting Irish, it was really just an English-Irish thing in the 1920s when they gained their independence from uh, English colonial rule. But um, now they are a very multicultural society. And so developing a place for the national language within a multicultural, multilingual thing is a different task because lots of immigrant uh, families want to keep their languages alive and they have to learn English, which is the dominant language. <clears throat> and so for Irish in that context, it becomes an extra challenge to persuade people. But they've done brilliantly well. So there's that problem there. But in a country like um, Sri Lanka, when I was working there, it was a question of conflict and peace because uh, the imposition of one language on other languages from 1956 had produced a lot of grievances like, you know, university students who had studied in one language were denied the opportunity to continue in that because they were trying to overcome the imposition of English under colonial rule. So in my work there was to try to get what we call the trilingual policy up. And we achieved a lot. Um, unfortunately, it all went backwards because there was terrible civil war that followed. It was actually started when I was there. Then um, so I worked very closely with the teachers there. and I actually was part of the Sri Lankan Teachers Association. I've still got very strong ongoing links. Everywhere I've worked, I've kept permanent links going uh, with people because I, 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 I'd like to learn local languages to the extent that I could um and become involved with the efforts of many of teachers in in bringing about change but that was the problem there it was about social development and we'll call it that's also the issue that the un invited me to work on in um, myanmar and malaysia and southern thailand where there's a civil conflict going on around questions of well, language is a part of other things. There's never really a case where a conflict is just about language, although that can that does happen actually, but it's it's it doesn't usually lead to civil unrest in an extreme way. 
But language is often involved with things. And very importantly, what I discovered and what I've written a lot about is that language is often the gateway to other to solutions because you can do something about language problems. People can learn languages. You can um, do research on them. You can um, publish materials in them. You can help to revive them. People are very proud of their languages. And if you bring languages up in this kind of way, um, it's a way of contacting uh, um, developing contact across generations because when languages are being lost one of the things that happens is that uh, older people and their grandchildren um, don't ha don't often have a comfortable shared medium of communication because um, the children have lost the home language and the grandparents have not learned the dominant language and this exacerbates other kinds of problems that exist so Different problems in different places, different challenges. And, uh, you know, in, in Europe, as you probably know, I'm sure the commitment to language study is enormous because of the European Union is a voluntary association of 27 countries and everyone wants to defend their language. And so when they join, they all join with their main language as an official language. So Maltese is just as officially equal it doesn't have the same power of course as english or french although england's moved out now of course with brexit but so the european union because of this agreement has been extremely committed to languages and they've done tons of stuff and i did a pro many projects there but one of the most interesting one was multilingual cities um and we worked in 14 cities cities where there was conflict between ethnic groups, cities where there was not conflict, but just huge new immigration and libraries and schools and other places. We're not used to this. These were places of emigration in the past towards Australia and Canada and Argentina and the US, and now we're receiving large numbers of immigrants. And this shift in perspective was difficult for them to make. Um, so there were very, very wide range of different issues, all of them connected to past history, economic or social conflict, or the desire for a new new start as an independent nation. So so interesting, isn't it? All those things that you were you were raising, especially when you start talking about Europe, it just, you know, there's um so many amazing things that us as Australians always look look to Europe and go, oh, <laughs> to live there and have to, that, that exposure in terms of the amount of languages that, you know, surround Europeans on a daily basis. Um, I wanted to ask you too, Joe, about the kind of that post late 80s, 90s period when the work you'd done in the policy was being adopted and, and started to be rolled out and, and put into place. Um so we're going back, you know, 30, 30 years now to that period. What do you think, like if you had your your time again and you were looking with, you know, this retrospective kind of hat on, what do you think would be forefront in your mind in developing a, a policy for this kind of era? You know, that's such a good question uh, and I'll, I'll have to think about it more than I'll be able to do it to do now and uh, but I will think about it because it, it's it's got me 
uh, focused on uh, something I'm writing at the moment. But to answer it directly, I, I feel that what we have learned and that what we might do differently is that um, the policy I did in 1980, I wrote it in 86, it was adopted in 87, was compre a comprehensive policy. It tried to do what well, didn't try to do, it did do, um, it did cover questions of English. Uh, remember I said at the beginning I got a lot of, well, not a lot, I got some very angry and at times it felt like a lot um, direct abuse by people who said, you know, this is an English-speaking country, don't undermine it, English is the most important, how dare you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we allowed your parents into this country, a lot of terrible things. Um <laughs> So there's a whole, it's not because of that person's anger or those people's anger that it's there. It's just because it's a necessary part of a language policy. Australia. There's a whole section about English and many aspects of English, English as a national language, Australian English, and why we should accept the, you know, at the time it wasn't that clear. I mean, now it seems like a non-issue, but at the time I, I got um, quite an abusive letter from someone in a very senior representative of Australia in another country, in a European country, he was posted to an embassy. Um, and he wrote to me and said that he he was shocked to see what I'd said in a newspaper about how, you know, we should accept Australian English as the model of English that we have. And he said, you know, this is terrible. You're cutting us off from the great family of English speaking nations in the world. As if I could do such a thing, I mean, what kind of power would you need to have so these people are paranoid about lots of things when it comes to language it's a very sensitive topic and you only realize that when you get involved in making change because then people get um either feel threatened or something but anyway so english was a major part of it many aspects of it literacy the kind of english we spoke research on english etc we supported the, the national dictionary center lots of projects Languages other than English, and in languages other than English, we divided it between, or I divided it between um, uh, European and Asian languages and other world languages that were in different category, and community languages, so all languages really, and then Indigenous languages as a separate and uh, category with a special claim on policy, and then questions of research, interpreting and translating, um, advisory groups, continual um, uh, um, monitoring of how we were doing, a whole comprehensive approach. And it was implemented pretty systematically for about seven years. And then, this is directly answering your question now, then what happened is that individuals with their own particular priority started to undermine things and push for either their particular language or their part of the world or their problem area. So, and it happened within English too, people concerned with adult migrant English compared to people concerned with adult literacy started to pull in different directions. And um, this is bad from several points of view, mostly because it fragments the solidarity and the movement that you need because actually governments ha are happy not to put money into things if they don't have to. And remember, the majority of the ruling political class and bureaucracy in Australia is quite monolingual um, or was much more so then. And many of them felt uh, that 
you know, this had been adopted by government and they didn't necessarily support it. And so there was some undermining going on and this gave them ammunition. So I think that uh, really to go back, and if I have understood your question properly, um, more effort to keep our the movement that had cre brought this policy to attention of government going. You know, we kept it going for maybe 12 years but then also through manipulation from governments, changes of government, changes in bureaucracies, lots and lots of things, and it came to fragment. And then the worst thing that happened was a very, very strong focus on trade mm. and economics and then the belief that some job, some languages are much better than others because they bring you, uh, they help the country's trade effort and there's actually very questionable evidence about all of that. I could supply, you know, we did a lot of research on this. So I could supply the correlation between um, language study and trade improvements, um, depending on particular economic um, and trade relationships, depending what you're selling and to whom. But still people believed it. And uh, this came to attract much, much more resources than other languages so we had a, a hierarchy of languages so that that if we could have avoided that happening i don't know how we would have done it but if we could have avoided it or stopped it from being so extreme it would have been a good thing then the other thing i have to say is that i pushed and pushed and pushed in the early 90s for a strong you know, lots of things didn't get up. I wanted a museum of languages um, in Canberra. We even designed the exhibits and everything. Um, and I was told by a senior official that this was a joke. Um, but, you know, the one in in uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, the one in the Bishop Museum in Hawaii, there's a lot of these museums now in the world and probably some of them predated the idea I had anyway. But I'm not claiming precedence i'm just claiming that it you know had we done that i think we'd have a beautiful asset today because these other ones in the world are very very interesting and successful and kids love them when they go and whatever but uh, you know everyone finds them interesting so anyway um but at the time i was really pushing for an early start in early childhood but the early childhood sector wasn't as plugged in as a continuum to schooling as it is now um, but it started to happen, as you know, I'm sure in Victoria there's been quite a lot of movement in that area and it's been really good. Fantastic. Joe, um, thank you for sharing so much information with us today. Um, honestly, I wish we could speak to you for a lot longer because <laughs> I feel like we, st we still probably have more questions. Um, but before we do finish up, um, is there, because uh, I, I know you've worked, you've worked on so many things and especially as somebody who works in academia, I'm sure there is many, there is a lot of published work um, that you, that you have available. Um, are you able to, to suggest where people can find out more about the work that you have done and perhaps read some of that work if they are interested in finding out more? Um, well, I have a ResearchGate website where a lot of my publications are downloadable. It's not up to date, <laughs> but a lot of them are uh, downloadable directly from there. Um, and 
um, anyone can contact me directly if they wish. I'm actually retired from the university, but I still, I'm an honorary uh, professor of university, so I still have my email address there so people can contact me through the university. Um, and one of my projects um, this year is to create a full repository, not beyond the research gate thing uh, on a personal website that I'm going to create on all of this, which will include the National Languages Institute and Language Australia publications as well, because at the moment they're scattered throughout different libraries and resource centres around Australia. They're all available, and there's hundreds of them, including the reports on the language expos that I mentioned briefly. So um, people can contact me for anything in particular or um, or at least start with the research gate one. There's lots to search through there, so and it's not very well organised. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Well, we will we'll make sure that there is a link in the show notes so that you know where to find um, Joseph Lobianco if you would like to get in touch with him or if you would like to find out <clears throat> more about his work. But, Joe, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, and I feel like we'll probably be um, sending you some further questions um, as time goes on because I'm not sure we were done today. <laughs> Okay. Well, congratulations on this fantastic thing you do. It's a. Re I, I looked at some of your previous ones, including my wonderful niece, and they're just terrific. So it's a really great resource you've put together. Well, thank oh, you, thank Joe. You. We yeah, love working we on it. it. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Thanks okay. again. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Language Chats. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, then you can go to our website at www.languagelovers.com.au. You can also find us in the normal internet places. We're on Facebook, languagelovers.au, and also on Instagram, languagelovers.au. Um, if you'd also like to get involved in the conversation a little bit more, um, we have a Facebook community um, and you can find our group at Language Lovers AU Community. We would love to see you there. And don't forget you can subscribe to Language Chat so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you have a quick 30 seconds, we would love it if you could leave us a rating and review. We read every comment and we love hearing from you. Please don't forget to share the episode with other language learners that you know who might find some value in our chat today. And we can't wait until the next episode. See you then. See you next time.